Thanks for tuning in. I'm not Shelby. And I'm not Renee. But you are listening to The Creepy Burrito. Welcome back to another Saucy Wednesday here at the Creepy Burrito. But today is much more than just a regular Wednesday. It's the first episode of October. Spooky. October. (laughs) Halloween. The first Wednesday of the month of Halloween. (laughs) Our time has come, my friends. Rise, fly, fly. Clearly, we are excited for... Halloween, and the entire month of October, our houses have pretty much been decorated for... Since August. (laughs) (laughs) I've been ready. I'm always ready. I pre-fall the pre-fall, which is August. Well, it is the most joyous time of the year. Speaking of the most joyous time of the year, we wanted to share an announcement with the Burrito family. Ah, yes. An announcement. With spooky season is officially upon us, we are having a spooktacular surprise giveaway. All you need to do to enter is send us your creepy stories. They can be ghosty stories, or that you were chased down by a murderer, abducted by aliens. We want, nay, need all of them to create a special creepy sode for you, by you, to you. That's right, we'll be reading all of your terrifying tales on an episode that will be released on October 28th. Send us your stories to thecreepyburrito at gmail.com by October 24th. The winner will be announced on All Hallows' Eve at 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Please do Check out the saucy details on our Instagram or Facebook at the Creepy Burrito. We can't wait to get lost in your sauce. And before we jumped in, we also wanted to give a little shout out to a sweet ass review that we got on iTunes by Lesbean77 who is my friend Kate. She gave us five stars, entitled, It's Sexy. Love this podcast. Do yourself a favor and dip your burrito in some creepy sauce. You won't be sorry. They cover it all, from true crime and conspiracy theories to aliens. I'm Renee's biggest fangirl. No offense, Shelby. Ouch. <laughs> Thanks. Liz Bean. Mm. 77. That's my favorite kind of bean. <laughs> Lime oh. beans. Kidney beans, Liz beans. Now today's episode was actually a recommendation by our friend Ellie. She said that this case would be a wild ride and that we should cover it. Ellie girl, you were not kidding because this case is fucking nuts, dude. Like this is one of those cases that will leave you with so many questions that will haunt you from years to come. Today, we are talking about the mysterious disappearance of Nicholas Barclay. I am buckling in. I am 
preparing myself. Are you barkling in? Barkling? Did I say barkling? No, I said it. Oh, oh, I get it. (laughs) Barkling. (laughs) All right. Nicholas Patrick Barclay was born on December 31st, 1980, and lived in San Antonio, Texas. Nicholas, or Nicky, lived in a rather small house with his mother, Beverly Dollarhide, who was a single mother and worked the graveyard shift at a local convenience store. Beverly had two older children from a previous marriage, and they were both significantly older than Nicholas. In the summer of 1994, he was just 13 years old. However, he was not your average 13-year-old boy. Nicholas had a reputation for being no good. He frequently got into trouble at school, but even more frequently skipped and didn't even go at all. Nicholas even already had a criminal record at the age of 13 from threatening his teachers, stealing a pair of shoes, and breaking and entering into a convenience store. Nicholas had a history of physical and verbal abuse towards his mother as well. Beverly stated that they would get into arguments where Nicholas would curse at her and hit her, and the police even had to be called multiple times in response to these arguments. Beverly eventually asked Jason, her eldest son, who was in his 20s at the time, to live with her in an effort to keep Nicholas under control. However, this only added fuel to the fire as Jason battled a cocaine addiction and had a violent temper himself. Nicholas was also diagnosed with Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder, or ADHD, which probably explains his lack of restraint and impulsiveness. Not to mention, approximately one-third of children with ADHD also have a condition called Oppositional Defiant Disorder, or ODD, which causes hostile behaviors towards authority figures, which we clearly see Nicholas had. Now, obviously, some oppositional behaviors are normal for children, especially in their teenage years, which I don't know about you guys, but they were literally the most rebellious and angsty years of my life. Oh, yeah. I was a a terror. I was the worst. But I also think, though, that there is a little more than just his mental health that caused these problems. So Nicholas was 13 years old, but he looked pretty young for his age. Mm-hmm. Like he was only four foot eight inches and weighed only about 80 pounds, mm-hmm. which he would be more likely to pass for like a 10 to 11 year old rather than a teenager. And teenagers fucking suck, dude. Like it's such a hard age and you get made fun of for, for everything. literally everything. So it's, I feel like Nicholas probably got made fun of for how much younger he looked than the rest of his age group. So he probably tried to make up for it in, like, toughness, which is why I think Nicholas made such a reputation for himself. Even further adding to this tough guy persona, Nicholas had three homemade tattoos given to him from friends. He had the letter J on his left shoulder, the letter T on his left hand in that, like, space between your thumb, thumb and, and your, your finger, finger. Your pointer finger. And he also had the letters L and N on his outer left ankle. Anyway, needless to say, all of these run-ins with the law eventually caught up to Nicholas, and he was scheduled for a court appearance on June 14th, which was going to determine if he was going to be sent to live in a group home. So on June 13th, 1994, 
the day before his scheduled court appearance, Nicholas was about a mile or two from his home playing basketball with his friends. He called home to see if his mother would pick him up when he was done, but his brother Jason answered the phone instead. Jason said their mother was asleep since she worked the graveyard shift and he refused to wake her up. He told Nicholas to walk home since it wasn't even that far Mm -hmm. and hung up the phone. Nicholas never returned home that day. Now, I've seen some articles say that it's believed by some that he hadn't been seen since the 10th and not reported missing until three days later. However, I couldn't really find anything concrete on that. But it is true that his family did wait longer than normal to report him missing. His family just simply assumed that he ran away to avoid the consequences of the hearing. And it wasn't out of the ordinary since he had actually ran away before. The police were pretty much on the same page and were slow to respond to the call. Given his reputation and his scheduled court appearance, they just assumed he was simply running away to avoid the inevitable and he'd show up in a day or so. He was last seen wearing a white shirt, purple pants, and was carrying a pink backpack. So police figured it'd be hard to miss him. But soon it became clear they were all wrong. He was missing for over 24 hours, only had $5 on him, and didn't have any of his belongings. Police theorized that if he did run away, he would have at least taken some personal items with him. So authorities opened a missing persons investigation, but pretty much after that, the police were stumped. I mean, he was 13 years old. He had no credit card, no phone, no vehicle to track. Police really weren't sure how to pursue Nicholas. It seemed the only explanation was that he was either hiding out somewhere local or that he had hitchhiked out of town. And if he had, there was even less hope of finding him that way. Days turned into weeks, weeks turned into months, and finally, years had gone by and the trail went cold. I mean, that's to say that there was even a trail in the first place, honestly, because who knows if the police took this case seriously at first, maybe he would have been found right away. Maybe if his mother wouldn't have waited to report him missing, there would have been some sort of lead. Because honestly, it just seems like Nicholas just vanished from the basketball court and and that was it. Like no one saw him walking home or, or even walking anywhere in general. Nicholas's mom theorizes that he may have got a ride home from a stranger since he wasn't scared of anything. And then something bad happened that way but there weren't even any reports of seeing Nicholas get into a car or even seeing a child get into the car. So as time went by, Nicholas's family was faced with the fact that they might never see him again. But then, suddenly, in October of 1997, three years later, San Antonio Police Department received a call from a man working in a youth shelter. Nicholas Barclay had been found, alive in a small village in Spain. Oh. So Nicholas was first discovered near a train station huddled in a telephone booth in Lenars, Spain. A tourist visiting the city called police to let them know that they saw a boy in trouble and authorities went and located the boy and brought him back to the station to try to figure out who he was and to return him home. However, the boy refused to talk, almost as if he didn't understand them. Authorities even tried to speak to him in a few different languages in an attempt to get answers, but they were still unsuccessful. The police eventually gave up and turned the boy over to the youth shelter. There he was interrogated again, 
but he still wasn't speaking to them. Eventually, they told the boy they were gonna have to perform a DNA test to determine who he was, and that's when he spoke in English that his name was Nicholas Barclay. He told them that he was an American and originally kidnapped from San Antonio, Texas. He said that he was held captive in a child sex trafficking ring run by European, Spanish, and American officials. He said that he had been abused for years, but finally escaped. Police obviously took the situation very seriously, and Nicholas's family was phoned immediately. Nicholas's family was thrilled, with his older sister Carrie being especially overjoyed. She had never been out of the country before, didn't have a lot of money, but she knew she had to get over to Spain somehow to positively identify him. With the help of her employer, which is actually pretty fucking cool, Carrie bought a ticket and flew out to Spain to bring her baby brother home. After a nine-hour flight, Carrie was taken to the shelter that Nicholas was staying at. He stayed in his room at first watching her from the window. He said that he was nervous that she wouldn't recognize him. But as soon as he went downstairs, Carrie took him in her arms and gave him a huge hug. She was just so relieved to have her brother back. Over the phone, Carrie was told the immense trauma that Nicholas had been through. So she refrained from asking him any questions about what had happened. But instead, she brought pictures from home of their family to help him remember the good times, to remind him what he was going back home to. She said at first he really didn't remember anything, but then something clicked and it all just started coming back. He said that Jason looked the same, that his nephew Cody got big, and that his mom looked the same, but like she put on a lot of weight. Aww. And he even asked her, is grandpa still an asshole? While they were looking through photos, Carrie looked down and saw Nicholas's hand tattoo. And when he was speaking, she noticed the gap in his teeth, just like he had had three years ago, even further confirming it was her brother. After that, Nicholas went back to being very quiet again, but Carrie knew that this was likely because of the abuse and gave him his space. That night, they shared a hotel room together, and Carrie recalls just how relaxing it was to listen to him breathing as he slept and how just relieved she was that they were finally all gonna be together again. The following morning before heading back to Texas, police wanted to make absolutely certain that this was Nicholas. So they brought him in one last time and presented to him five family photos and they asked him to identify who the family members were. Nicholas got four right, but got the fifth one wrong but that didn't matter because getting four correct plus the positive identification from his sister was all the proof that they needed. They issued Nicholas a passport, he got on a plane and went with his sister to head home to Texas. Nicholas's entire family was there to greet him as soon as they got off the plane. When he arrived home, his family showered him in hugs, but Nicholas seemed very stiff still. He was cold and standoffish and didn't really speak much to anyone. He was bundled up in layers of clothes, a hat, scarf, and sunglasses. They knew that what had happened to Nicholas had changed him, so they tried to make him as comfortable as possible. Since Nicholas went missing, his mother had moved from her home and was renting a room and didn't have enough space for Nicholas, so Carrie took him in. Nicholas shared a room with her son, Cody, since they were close in age, They played Nintendo together. They would all watch movies as a family together. 
Cody introduced him to his friends and they would all go hang out at the park. Carrie thought it was very important to establish a routine for Nicholas to help him to adjust back to normal life. Nicholas's family took him shopping, bought him a whole new wardrobe, new games, anything he wanted. He eventually returned back to school and even began liking a girl. Things started to go back to normal. And it was around this time that Nicholas divulged a little more information about what had happened to him in Spain. So on November 4th, 1997, he was interviewed by special agent Nancy Fisher with the FBI. It was extremely important to them that they located Nicholas's captors. So she wanted to interview him as soon as possible before he forgot any information. So she recalls Nicholas seemed quite nervous and appeared to be uncomfortable. However, when she explained to him her purpose for the interview and how important it was, Nicholas began talking. He had informed her that he was talking to two boys the day that he went missing. Then, before he knew what was happening, a rag was put over his mouth and he passed out. He said he woke up inside of a van and from there was loaded into a plane and taken out of the country. She thought it was peculiar that he was speaking with an accent, but he informed her that he was forced to learn Spanish. If he spoke any English while he was over there, he was beaten. This explained why he was speaking with a sort of twang on his words. Nicholas also said that they would try to alter the children's appearances to make them less likely to be detected. And they tried all sorts of things from changing their hair color to injecting a solution into the children's eyes to change their eye color, which is why Nicholas's eye color looked more brown than the bright blue that it once was. And then Nicholas went into even further detail about how he was tortured. He said that they broke both of his hands with a baseball bat that his left foot was broken with a crowbar. They put cigarettes out all over his body, fed him insects to eat, just horrible conditions. And he said all of the kids in this operation were subjected to sexual abuse from high-ranking military officers. And they instilled fear in these kids by using military tactics and even experimented on some of them. Nicholas, unfortunately, being one of them. At the end of the interview, Special Agent Nancy Fisher assured Nicholas that they would find these people and bring an end to all of this. But she was rattled, to say the least. She couldn't shake off this horrendous story and had all of the side effects that come with listening to something so terrible. But there was something else that she couldn't shake either. Nicholas seemed older somehow. Of course, experiences like this can change a kid and force them to grow up faster. And obviously, Nicholas wouldn't have came back the same boy as he was before. But physically, Nicholas seemed older. Anyway, Nancy Fisher had advised Nicholas and his family not to contact the media. If they were involved in this, it would be front page news. And if by chance one of Nicholas's abductors were to see any press coverage, it might derail the entire investigation. But that didn't mean anything to private investigator Charlie Parker. He had received a call from a television producer who wanted an interview with Nicholas and wanted Charlie to track him down. And well, that was Charlie's job, so he did. Charlie eventually tracked Nicholas and his family down and then drove him and his mom to Northern San Antonio for an interview. 
As the interviewer was asking Nicholas questions about his experience and what had happened to him while he was missing, Charlie Parker was standing backstage watching the interview from a booth. He happened to look over to his left and saw a photograph of Nicholas from before he went missing. So he grabbed the older picture of Nicholas and put it in the back of his pocket. When he got back to the office, he scanned the picture and uploaded it into Photoshop and enhanced the photo to better see Nicholas's ears. Now, after working in this field for so long, over time, he learned and developed different techniques for identification. And one of them was the ears. Oh, that's they were, strange. Yeah. <laughs> they are almost like a set of fingerprints. I mean, you figure your ears, they don't change. They grow, yes, but structurally, they don't change. But when Charlie compared the enhanced photo of Nicholas's ears to a still of Nicholas from the interview, the hair on the back of his neck stood up. It was not Nicholas Barclay. Oh, that's terrifying. So the same kid that even his sister, like, identified? and yep. So, okay. Immediately, Charlie Parker phoned Special Agent Nancy Fisher and informed her of his findings. Nancy, on the other hand, thought she didn't have a right to question Nicholas or his family. They would know if it was him or not. She advised him that he needed to be careful that he didn't intrude on a federal investigation and ended the call. Nancy herself was under a lot of stress. She basically had no information to work with. Nicholas was only able to give general answers, but nothing definite like names, places, or dates. Clearly, Nicholas was having a hard time remembering any information because of the immense trauma. So she decided to take Nicholas to the Children's Hospital in Houston, Texas to see a forensic psychiatrist with the intent on finding more information about the people who abducted Nicholas. So Nicholas met with Dr. Bruce Perry and was asked to retell what had happened to him and what he experienced. Dr. Perry says that almost immediately he knew something wasn't right. Nicholas didn't show any of the normal psychological changes that a person would when reliving or retelling traumatic experiences. His body posture never changed. His pupils never changed in size. His heart rate never increased. And even more disturbing, he couldn't speak English without an accent. And this was very telling to Dr. Perry just scientifically and psychologically, you cannot forget your native tongue. Like you can't be raised for the first 13 years of your life in an English speaking home and then just suddenly forget how to speak it. Even in three years, that's not enough time to forget an entire language that you've been already speaking for 13 years. Right, like it's possible for people to live or stay somewhere different and then pick up like their dialect. Like for instance, I used to be friends with this guy who grew up in Pennsylvania his entire life and then moved to Tennessee. And within six months when he came back up to visit, he had a Southern accent. Or not to mention when I lived in Minnesota and then came back with a Minnesota, Minnesota accent. accent. But both of you guys uh. were able to speak to turn it off and and speak without that accent if you wanted to. And I mean, same goes for anywhere else too. Like if you stay or move somewhere for an extended period of time, you eventually start to pick up their dialect. But 
upon returning home, you'll eventually lose it again and just start speaking in the same language or dialect that you were raised in because that's what's natural mm-hmm. to you. And sometimes you don't even lose your native dialect. Like, I know this is way out of left field and like a clash of worlds here, but look at freaking Terry Irwin, like <laughs> Steve Irwin's wife, RIP, lived in the United States for 27 years of her life before moving to Australia and has lived in Australia now for almost 30 years and still just has an American dialect to her speech. Mm-hmm. Like she's literally lived in Australia now for longer than she has lived in the United States, but still speaks like she's from Oregon. Anyway, I digress. Nicholas couldn't speak even without an accent. Like he couldn't speak English in an American accent if he tried to. So my question is if, okay, so is this all just a plan to get this kid into America then? Why would they specifically make this child look exactly like a missing U.S. kid. If he has the same gap, the same tattoos, how I don't understand what this is leading to. (laughs) Are we getting there? Are you going to give me answers? Or am I just going to get more fucked? No, I'm going to give you answers. Okay, I'm sorry. No, you're fine. But anyway, so he couldn't speak English with an American accent even when he tried. Like, it was just all fucked up. So from this, Dr. Perry was able to conclude that he was absolutely certain that this child did not grow up in an English-speaking family. So Nancy Fisher immediately called Carrie, Nicholas's sister, and told her the news. Advised her that this person could in no way be your brother because this person was not an American. She advised Carrie not to go to the airport, do not pick up Nicholas, and you absolutely did not need to take this individual home with you. And that just Nancy would handle it and take it from there. So they flew back to San Antonio, got off the plane, made their way through the airport to find Carrie waiting there for Nicholas. Carrie walked up to Nicholas, gave him a hug, asked him how his trip was like nothing ever happened, and then took him home. Even though they told her yep. this is a yep. stranger. Nancy was completely baffled, dude. Like, I just had this conversation with you literally hours ago that this was not your brother and that you should not take him home. But you took him home. So Carrie states that she doesn't remember Nancy putting it in those words. What words does she remember? Right, Besides like, the fact of, like, do um, not take this child home it is not your brother right like how i don't understand how you could have possibly misconstrued what nancy had said to you anyway nancy excused herself momentarily while they were hugging and and talking and called the u.s attorney's office because she literally had no idea what to do no clue what to do so the assistant u.s attorney actually advised her to let him temporarily return home with Carrie until they figured out what the next move should be. So she did. It's almost as if the family wanted this to be Nicholas so badly that they were turning a blind eye to all of the obviously blaring red flags. And on top of everything else, Nicholas was frequently seen with a five o'clock shadow and you would never see him without a hat, which covered up his hair. Now, Nicholas had blonde hair, but when he returned home, 
it wasn't the same blonde hair. And I understand that people's hair can naturally darken over time, but he had a brassy color to his hair. Like the only kind of brassy color that you were to get if you were a brunette and then and bleach it. your hair. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like for those of you who, who aren't hairdressers, it's practically impossible to go from a dark brunette hair color to a bright blonde color in one sitting. Like you need multiple treatments to lighten and tone your hair to get it to that desired color. And if you bleach your hair just one time, maybe even two or three times, you're going to end up with this yellowy, brassy, orange color that Nicholas had. So Nancy Fisher went to Nicholas's mom Beverly and asked for a DNA sample. That way she could run a comparison and see once and for all if this was truly Nicholas. Beverly stated, this is my son. I don't have to provide you any DNA samples and refused to cooperate. Nancy Fisher says she even laid down on the floor and said, no, and you can't pick me up and you can't make me. I mean, well, also, you got to think about it. For the last three years, this family has been, like, torn apart. They don't know where their child is. So, to a certain level, like, I do understand that that they just want someone so badly badly to to fill that void that's been there and not having any answers. Neither Nicholas or Beverly would cooperate. So the only thing left to do was to get a search warrant to obtain the samples that they needed. Once a warrant was obtained, Nancy and two other agents arrived to pick up Nicholas and obtained his fingerprints and palm prints to send them out to Interpol and to different embassies to search their records. And it wasn't long before they got a call back. On March 3rd of 1998, the fingerprints belonged to 23-year-old Frederick Pierre Bourdin. Oh. A complete and total stranger had been living with Nicholas's family for six months. There is a big difference in men from yeah. 16 uh-huh. to 23. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, Frederick Bourdin was a French citizen, a serial imposter from France known as the Chameleon, and was a wanted man by Interpol. Oh, yeah. okay. So did he just like to do this or was he trying to get into America? I have so many questions. So Frederick was born on June 13th, 1974 and was raised by his grandparents because his mother was rather young when he was born. Frederick never knew his father, although his mother stated that he was a married man and also an Algerian immigrant. Frederick's Grandparents were disgusted that Frederick was half Algerian because apparently they were incredibly racist, but still raised him since his mother couldn't. Frederick says that he grew up without any love or affection and he had always wanted to be someone else. And although he was a criminal and went by fake aliases before, pretending to be Nicholas Barclay was the first time he had ever stole someone's identity. But how exactly was he ever mistaken for Nicholas in the first place? I'm about to blow your mind. Mm -hmm. I'm not ready for it. When Frederick was huddled up in that phone booth the night that he was taken in, he knew that he wanted to pretend to be a kid. And when police showed up to investigate the call that was made about him, 
he purposely acted scared and vulnerable, like flinching at any moves that the cops made towards him, mimicking actions that scared or abused children would make. So they assumed he was a child and, and the, the tourists that saw him assumed he was a child. So when he was taken into the police station, he purposely didn't tell police who he was and purposely didn't talk because he knew that they couldn't keep him. He would be handed over to the youth center where he could essentially start over again. Everything was going according to plan. Police handed him over to the youth shelter. The youth shelter took him in, provided him a room, but there was one small hiccup. They wouldn't stop fucking bugging him for who he was. And once they threatened him to be fingerprinted, Frederick knew he had to act quickly or his identity would be revealed and he'd go to prison. This is when he told the youth shelter that he was an American. He was from the United States and ran away. He told them though, that he was willing to contact his family for them because he didn't want his family to receive a phone call from someone that they didn't know. So of course the youth care officials being completely stunned because they never had this before, allowed Frederick who, who they thought was a child, an office space to attempt to contact his family. But what they didn't know was that Frederick instead would go fishing for a new identity. Oh, so he just starts looking up missing persons. Right, so and, he, he made oh, calls. No. He made a call to the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, told them that his name was Jonathan Bourdain, a police officer in Spain, <gasps> that they found a child who they were sure was an American, seemed to be about 14, 15 years old, probably missing for a few years, but they didn't know who he was. Oh, I have so many chills. I hate this. I hate this so much. So the representative on the line searched through their records and came across the name Nicholas Barclay. Oh my God. Frederick asked the representative to fax over a picture of the boy to make sure that it was the child that they had when in reality, Frederick wanted to make sure he could potentially pass for the boy. So they faxed the flyer over for Nicholas Barclay and it was perfect for Frederick. Nicholas went missing when he was 13 and he had been gone for nearly four years. This was someone he knew that he could impersonate because he knew his family would be expecting him to change and look older. So called the hotline back and said, we've got him, it's Nicholas. (gasps) That is absolutely terrifying. And like, how did he look out well, okay. to look so much like this kid? Like, is there, is it obvious when you look at him? Is it not obvious? Did he have a gap before? Did he <laughs> fucking grind his teeth? Like, what happened? So after that, the hotline informed police and then the police contacted Nicholas's family. And Carrie actually called the youth shelter herself to confirm, to which the call was intercepted by none other than Frederick Bourdain himself. He told Carrie, again, that his name was Jonathan Bourdain and that he was the one who found Nicholas and he was sitting there with him. And he told Carrie that he wasn't talking, seemed to be very scared, didn't remember much of anything. Even impersonated Nicholas by saying, love you, to Carrie when she asked to speak to him. So the next day, the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children actually sent another flyer to the shelter. And it was the first time that Frederick had seen a color photo of Nicholas. And that's when he realized that Nicholas had blonde hair and blue eyes. Very different from Frederick's brunette hair and brown eyes. Oh my gosh. So Frederick realized at that point he was in over his head. 
So he actually tried to run away, but was found and brought back. So he decided to continue with what he started, buying a box of blonde hair dye to color his hair, and even seeking out a girl within the youth shelter who gave homemade tattoos, asking to get the same ones that Nicholas had. Once Carrie arrived to retrieve Nicholas, Frederick started to panic. And that's why he didn't leave his room at first, because he was truly scared that she would know right away it wasn't Nicholas. But as we know, she didn't. She ran up to him, gave him a huge hug, even commented on how much he looked just like their Uncle Pat. And the pictures that Carrie brought to remind him of home only further helped Frederick's case. Because after she showed him all those pictures of their family members, they brought him in and asked him to identify them again. Yeah, so it's a nice already, crash course. Yeah, like, oh, you remember knew. Uncle Patrick? Mm-hmm. This is mom. You know her. Right. So Frederick actually was stunned that he fooled Nicholas's family. He thought that it was just going to be a short con and then move on to the next one. He truly didn't anticipate keeping up the con for as long as he did. He was scared that Nicholas would actually return home any day and he would be outed. And then once Nicholas's family were told the truth, they were obviously heartbroken and angry. They had wasted their time and energy on a complete stranger who caused them even more pain and heartache. If only the tourist who called the police in the first place wouldn't have assumed that it was a child in a telephone booth, none of this would happen. But that wouldn't have happened either. Because you guessed it, it was Frederick as well who called the police, pretending to be a concerned tourist. Oh my god. He literally set the entire thing up himself. (laughs) Yep. So once Frederick was exposed, he made several contradicting statements about Nicholas. At first, he claimed to have known Nicholas in Spain and that the boy was still alive. Then he claimed to have proof that Nicholas was actually dead. And then finally later, he denied ever having met Nicholas and stated he knew nothing about the case. Ultimately, he was arrested and sentenced to six years in jail, which is actually more than three times what the sentencing guidelines suggest. But because of the harm that he caused Nicholas's family, he was punished more severe. He talked to a lot of officials. Like, that's that's difficult. But this poses the question, what happened to the real Nicholas? The case was back at square one. However, Frederick did make some interesting claims after he was outed. He believes that Nicholas's family were the ones that killed him. He says that when Beverly refused to give up her DNA sample, he started to become suspicious. They knew he wasn't Nicholas. They knew that everything he was telling them was bullshit. He thinks that some of them did it, thinks that some of them know about it and others just choose to ignore it. Did he go digging like when he was in the house? Well, he questions how the family could have even remotely thought that he was Nicholas. He looked nothing like him. There were red flags everywhere indicating he wasn't who he said he was. But they all went along with it because it was like a second chance lets her out. He even thinks that in Spain, whenever Carrie came to pick him up, she did everything for him. Like when he didn't know something, she would tell him. When he didn't remember a person, 
she would tell him. He says that he thinks that she didn't for one second think he was her brother. That she instead decided that he was going to be her brother. He thinks that Nicholas's family pretended that he was Nicholas just as much as he pretended to be Nicholas. Well, that's fucked. And towards the end of his time living in the house, he said he was no longer worried that Nicholas was going to show up. However, Charlie Parker actually believes that Frederick might be on to something. So Frederick's allegations made Charlie take a deeper look at Nicholas's family. Because, I mean, really, how could they have not known that that wasn't Nicholas? Like, Charlie didn't even know him, but knew pretty quickly that this wasn't Nicholas. When Charlie was doing some further investigation, he stumbled across police files that in September of 1994, just three months after Nicholas had gone missing, his older brother Jason called the police to say he saw Nicholas trying to break into the garage, but when he tried to approach Nicholas, he ran off. When the cops arrived, there's no sign of any attempted break-in, and after they combed the neighborhood, no signs of Nicholas either. Could Jason have made that call to police to make it seem like Nicholas was alive? Could Jason have killed Nicholas and made that call to police to seem like Nicholas was alive? I mean, we see shit like that happen all the time. But his family seems to think that that's absolutely ridiculous. They said that it's not in Jason's nature to have killed anyone. But Jason was a drug addict and he did have a tendency for violence. And maybe Jason just accidentally killed Nicholas and was trying to cover it up. And remember when I said that his entire family was there to greet Nicholas, a.k.a. Frederick, when they got off the plane? Mm-hmm. Well, actually, there was one person missing. Who's missing? Jason. Jason. Oh, God. In fact, get ready for this one. Frederick says that he had only ever met and spoke to Jason one time. And their interaction consisted of Jason looking him up and down and then coldly saying, good luck. Oh, that's terrifying. Yeah, yeah. So was this because he knew that he wasn't Nicholas because he killed him? Did the whole family know? Is that why they just accepted a complete and total stranger to live with them without much proof of his identity? Or was it just Jason? Or maybe it was Jason and Beverly in on it together because it came to light prior to Nicholas's disappearance that Beverly was addicted to heroin. Oh. And I'm not saying that that causes people to kill their children, but it does cause you to do some pretty questionable stuff, like neglecting your child. And maybe that's the reason why Nicholas's behavior towards his mother was so violent. Maybe that's why he would lash out at her. And maybe it was the last straw, or maybe something happened where Jason killed Nicholas while Beverly was too high or strung out to notice. Or third possibility, and this might be a little too controversial, I haven't really heard too many people say this, but in my mind, I thought 
what if Nicholas got into their drugs? Yeah, and an OD, and then right. you're trying to cover up. It's just a, uh-huh. a what if? What if he got into their stash? You know, heroin, cocaine, whatever. Overdosed. They found him the next morning. Decided to cover it up instead of outing themselves that they were on drugs. Mm-hmm. Like that's not too in my mind. That's not too far out of left field. That I understand it's your child, but. Maybe it wasn't Beverly. Maybe it was Jason who found Nicholas. Well, either way, it wouldn't be the first questionable case where a parent would try to hide something for a child. Exactly. (laughs) 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 Ramsey. (laughs) Mike Turney. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, so when it comes to the family murdering Nicholas theory, I tend to kind of more lean towards Beverly wasn't involved. When an investigation was launched on the family after Frederick's claims, Beverly took a total of three polygraph tests. She passed the first test, passed the second test, but failed the third test. And the failing of the third test, that's when investigators were like, oh, she obviously knows more than she's letting on. But I think that's fucking bullshit. I don't think you can keep polygraphing someone until they fucking fail. Like, yeah, you're going to get more and more nervous every time right. that you're taking it because... It's bullshit. You can't, you can't keep doing that. Yeah, I just don't understand. I mean, polygraphs obviously are circumstantial anyway, anyways. Yeah. But maybe test them once. May- okay, maybe retest them twice. But fucking three times? So, anyway, I mean, you figure Nicholas had been missing for four years. Like, no no one was looking for him. The police weren't asking questions. So why would you take in a complete stranger if everything was going so well? You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. if your plan to cover it up was going so well, nobody was asking questions, why would you, ex- what, like, I don't know, maybe they thought that it would be weird and they would get looked into if they didn't take in a child that was claiming to be Nicholas. But I don't think that it would have been weird at all for them to have been like, oh, yeah, that's not Nicholas. You know? Like, mm. I, I don't know. Was Beverly involved? I don't think so. But then again, why did she refuse to have her DNA sample taken? Was Carrie involved? I don't think so. Because she honestly seems to be the only one that even cared about Nicholas or was even a decent person out of the entire family. Was Jason involved? I think so. I mean, but then again, he was a drug addict, so maybe did he just think that he saw Nicholas breaking into the garage that night and was just trying to call police to help? Jason only knows the answer to that one. And unfortunately, we'll never know the truth because a short time after Frederick's arrest, Jason died of a cocaine overdose. Ah, yikes. Yep. And then again, maybe we are completely off the mark. Maybe none of that happened. Maybe it's just another lie that Frederick is using to put himself in the limelight. Another story to add to his collections. He is a habitual liar, after all. And while he was in prison, after he was arrested for pretending to be Nicholas Barclay, he made multiple calls to parents of missing children claiming to have information on their whereabouts. Oh no, that's always the worst. Mm -hmm. If you're a shitbag, just be a shitbag. Don't be the worst kind of shitbag. Don't be a bigger shitbag. Oh. oh, don't worry. He he gets he goes from there. So after Frederick's sentence was up and he was returned back to the France in 2003, wasn't long before he assumed the identity of Leo Bailey, a 14-year-old French boy who had been missing since 1996, which eventually DNA testing proved he was obviously not that kid. 
Then in August of 2004, he was in Spain again, claiming to be an adolescent named Ruben Sanchez Espinoza, whose mother had been killed in the Madrid bomb attacks. And then when the police found the truth, they deported him back to France. And then in June 2005, Frederick passed himself off as Francisco Hernandez Fernandez, a 15-year-old orphan whose parents had been killed in a car accident and spent a month in junior high school. At this point in Frederick's life, he was 31 years old, pretending to be a 15-year-old. So it's like the plot line of never been kissed. Right. <laughs> right. Like he he dressed like a teenager, walked like a teenager, however you do that. Why couldn't he just be like an actor? Go into theater. Like <laughs> right. if you like to assume a different identity, go into theater. Like he, um, be creative. At this point too, 31 years old, he had a receding hairline because he was starting to go bald. So he covered up his hairline with a hat constantly, kind of like how he did when he was pretending to be Nicholas, and apparently had used multiple depilatory face creams, which actually remove unwanted hair from your face. So he was trying to get rid of his beard to pretend to be a 15-year-old. So luckily, though, an administrator from the school that he was attending saw a television program about him, about the chameleon and stealing people's identities, recognized him and then turned him in and then later that year he was sentenced to prison again but only four months how is he being sentenced like such little time in that's prison? only that's only what the time is that's only what the guideline of of doing that is like it's your jail time I know, it's fucking wild. That's in, that's insane. Right. To like steal somebody's identity get and this, you only though. get that much time. All in all, Frederick is believed to have masqueraded under no less than 500 false identities. <gasps> and there's literally a list of all of like most of the identities that they know he used or stole. It's fucking wild. In August of 2007, after a year-long courtship, Frederick married a French woman named Isabel, which I don't know how you can marry someone who has lived that life, but okay, Isabel. Anyway, they had five children together, but in March of 2007, Frederick made a Facebook post stating that Isabel had been unhappy for the past 10 years and left him with the children for another man, but... The status of Isabel and the children is currently unknown. And I don't think it's too far outlandish to think that maybe he made that shit up too. So I can't I can't find anything online. Did they get divorced or what do you mean? She just left them. She just said peace out, left. That's oh. It. But that's the only information that I can find on it. I can't I couldn't find any articles proving that she left him, mm. that they were even married. Like I can't who knows? And it's just weird. Why would you make a Facebook post stating that your wife left you? I, I don't know. I don't know. Anyway. Why do you try to impersonate being a little boy when you're like 30 years old? And just a lot of things we just don't have answers to. No. Including, where's Nicholas? It has been 26 years since Nicholas has went missing. And this year, he would have turned 40. Although it's unfortunate I don't think we're going to find Nicholas Barclay alive after all this time. However, he still deserves justice. So 
if anyone has any information at all on the whereabouts or what happened to Nicholas Barclay, no matter how insignificant you think it may be, please call the San Antonio Police Department at 210-207-7484 or the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children at 1-800-843-5678. Also, I wanted to note that I got most of my information from a documentary that A&E filmed called The Imposter, which most of Nicholas's family is in it. Special Agent Nancy Fisher's in it, Charlie Parker's in it, and the douchebag himself, (laughs) Frederick Bourdain, is in it. Actually, he does most of the narration of the documentary. Well, that's bone chilling. (laughs) Right. And pretty much the entire time, he's just a smug bastard, like proud of what he did and that he got away with it. But in in the documentary, it does give you a more in-depth look at Frederick's side of things and like, how did they not know it was Nicholas? I just, I highly recommend watching it. Um, I think you can watch it for free on the Tubi app, or I actually found a website called watchdocumentaries.com, and that's how I watched it. After watching it, I'm pretty convinced Carrie had nothing to do with it, nor does she know anything about Nicholas's disappearance. However, not so convinced about Beverly, because watching her in the interview and just the way that she talks... Gives you that gut feeling. Yeah, it seems kind of weird. Like, she talks and she lacks emotion. And when she talks, she looks around a lot and, like, looks away from the camera. Did they ever make her talk to, like, a um, get checked out by a psychiatrist the way that they did to Nicholas? No. See, that would be intriguing to see what type of deception she's throwing out there. I know. It's just weird. I don't know. I mean, but... Or she might just be a grieving mother. It's true. It's all speculation. It's all, honestly, I mean, watch the documentary, take a look for yourselves, and then you know what you should do, guys, after you watch that documentary? You should fucking tell us about it. You should send us a fucking email. At thecreepyburrito at gmail.com. Or hit us up on Facebook or Instagram at thecreepyburrito. Hell yeah. You can always write us a sweet ass review on iTunes. Or rate us on your streaming app, if you can figure it out. And don't forget, send us the creepy stories. Mm, I want to hear all of them. All of your creepy shit. Send it to me. Keep me up at night. Like, were you possessed? Were you spewing all over your room and all over everybody, including a priest? Um, were you probed? Were you probed? Did you have butt stuff? Stuff in your butt? Maybe foot stuff. <laughs> Who knows? Tell us about it. <laughs> you tell us. We don't know. We don't know. You gotta tell us the creepy stories, and on that note, <laughs> can't wait to get lost in the sauce with you next time. Uh, a uh, goodbye. Goodbye. Bye-bye.
<laughs> it did annoy me, but it, it just made me mad. <laughs> it didn't annoy it. me. It just fucking infuriated <laughs> me. I just hate it. 